0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly, Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the Church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 58.
1: And now, here's Steve.
0: Good morning. It's wonderful to see everybody out here this morning. Thank you, Hannah, Trevor, and Ryan for the great opening. Just, the music is just, just draws us closer to the Lord. It just speaks to the things of what we're going to cover this morning. And it does it in such amazing ways. And thanks to Ted and to Eve making the technology work. I can appreciate, I do appreciate some of the challenges of that sometimes, and thanks for all your work back there too. If you haven't been with us uh, for a bit, we've been working through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we've been getting an understanding of some of the issues that he was addressing to this young church community. And this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 15. Now the first part of this chapter goes through some hypothetical what if questions. What if there was no resurrection? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What does that mean for those who believe? How might they live if there was no resurrection? And the second part of the chapter talks about the resurrection body. Paul notes that there are different types of bodies, and so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. This chapter provides the foundation for our Christian faith. If we have this part wrong, it's game over. It's all a big charade, a big farce. However, Paul makes it clear there's no question about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Death has lost its sting, and we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are, therefore, to stand firm and give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The implications are eternal. Now, this is a fairly long chapter, so I hope we brought your lunches with you. Just kidding. Let's just commit our time to prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, I just pause and just marvel that the God who created the heavens and the universe created and loved ones like us. It's just so amazing. Marvel at the love that sent your son Jesus to the cross on our behalf. Marvel at his willingness, his love to just go to the cross on our behalf. And thank you for the demonstration of power when Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you for your interest in our lives and sending your spirits. And Father, as we open your word this morning. I just pray for your guidance. Help us all, Father, just to get a few nuggets from it, grow a little closer to you, and reflect your grace in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, by way of context, the Corinthian church was heavily influenced by the Greek culture. Paul pointed out that the resurrection would occur in end times. problem is, Greeks and Romans did not believe in end times. And the notion of a bodily resurrection was foolishness to them. Some believed that the soul was immortal but not the body. There's no such thing as the body going into an afterlife. Many of the Jewish people believed that the resurrection of the righteous would happen. For example, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 said, it points to a future time when the resurrection would occur. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people... Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now there were, however, some debates among the Jewish people regarding the nature of resurrection. For example, what would the body look like? Would it be raised in the same form that the person died in? What about situations where they didn't have the whole body? Would people recognize the resurrected person and so on? Now we know not all of the Jewish people believed in this, however. For example, in Acts 23, Paul had been brought before the Sanhedrin, and he looked around and he saw that there were Sadducees and Pharisees. So Paul cries out, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believed all things. So let's just read from our passage. We'll just start reading 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the Twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So Paul starts off by noting he's made known to them the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus, and holding on to the gospel is evidence of their belief and of their commitment to the Lord. Going to church on Sunday, spending time with Christians, doesn't make somebody a Christian. That only happens when we put our trust in Jesus as individuals. And Paul says he shared the facts that he learned. The good news, I should say the great news, is that Jesus died for their sins and ours, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, he died, and he rose again, according to the Scriptures. And this is the essence, this is the foundation of the Gospel message, isn't it? Now, it's not just some fantasy story that Paul is perpetuating. To help make his point, Paul refers to six individuals or groups of people who were eyewitnesses. And it's interesting to note that he didn't note the women who were mentioned in the Gospels, who saw him first. Maybe because in that culture, the testimony of the women wasn't counted. He starts with Cephas, or Peter. And you may remember, Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times. The, sorry, the 12 refers to the small group of disciples who were closest to Jesus, although at this time there were 11. Judas was no longer with them. Given the fact that many believed in ghosts and an afterlife, people would have accepted claims that Jesus was seen in some form of a spirit. The eyewitnesses, however, said they saw Jesus in bodily form. One of the many reasons that we can trust that the resurrection is true It's just the way that teaching was passed on over time. Teachings were weighed against the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And if somebody came in with a different teaching that wasn't consistent with that, it was rejected. So we know that that truth has been brought along over the many years. Paul says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was to me was not without effect. He says, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. Paul refers to himself as one abnormally born. Other versions read to one untimely born, or born out of due time. This could refer to the fact that Paul, like James, only believed in Jesus after the fact. He wasn't part of the gang when others were of Jesus. Paul was a religious leader who wanted to serve God, and although his goal of wiping out Christianity was misguided, he certainly had a life-changing encounter with the living God, probably a couple of years after Jesus rose. So what about you? What about me? Can each of us say that we've had a life changing encounter with the living God? It may not be as dramatic as Paul's situation, but each of us needs to know God personally. It's not just good enough to know about him. You have to know him. Although he didn't feel worthy to be called an apostle because of the things he did in the past, Paul was completely focused on working for the Lord. Nobody was going to outwork him. He does know, however, it wasn't just him, but it was the grace of God that was leading and driving him. He preached, and we preach, so people will believe. Although Paul was an incredibly hard and determined worker, again, he made it clear it's all about God's grace. and We sung about that earlier, didn't we? How his grace just washes over us. Sometimes people can be difficult and sometimes people can be downright miserable, right? Perhaps some of us may fall into that category at times. Uh, uh, I know I've been called a lot worse than that and I usually deserved it. Uh, Amazing grace, though. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, unfortunately, the days of being able to have a debate and discuss Things when people have different opinions seem to be slipping away in in our society now. Today's approach seems to be to shame and scream at people who have a different opinion from you, who don't have the the right opinion. It almost seems like it's an, an attempt to get them to cower and back down and just get out of the way so that somebody else can drive an agenda. It's an incredibly unhealthy way to address differences and to find a common solution. What Paul did in his letter was to start with things that people would agree on, start with things that people knew, and then work from there. And something that we should probably try and do in our lives too. We need to have God's grace flowing through us if we're going to share the gospel with others. The more we tap into his love, the more we appreciate just how much he loves us. And how much grace he's shown us, the more that flows through to others from us. In chapter 13, Paul noted you can do all sorts of things, all sorts of wonderful things, all sorts of noble things, but none of them count if they're not done in love. So what about the resurrection of the dead? Paul notes that there are some who are denying the reality of the resurrection and notes the implications if they're right. So... If there's no resurrection, then this. right? So he starts at verse 12. He says, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, sorry, but he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. So Paul goes through some of those implications, right? If there's no resurrection, then this. And then he comes to the crux of it. Verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith, our faith, is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. It says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if there's no resurrection, think about it, we spent a lot of time trying to convince people about some mythical God. If there's no resurrection, we've invested some huge portions of our lives, our time, our money, our talents, in something that has no lasting value. Look at the building that we're in. They could have turned this thing into a a subdivision, or this could be, I don't know, a theater or something. So if there was no resurrection, I think some would laugh and just you know, call us a big elves. And all this aside from the fact, from the reality that Christians have had this huge positive influence in society over the years, for example, our laws, hospitals, education system, supporting the poor, etc. A few years ago, I heard somebody talking about being able to influence others when you have no formal authority over them. And one of the things that this person said always stuck with me. He said, the word but negates everything that came before it. So if you're talking to someone say, hmm, yes, I hear you, I really like what you're saying, but everything that they just said is washed away. Essentially, you're saying, yeah, I hear you, now be quiet, and I'm going to tell you what it really is. You're essentially dismissing what they said. So I love the fact that after Paul notes the implications of there being no resurrection, we see the word but. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. As we read, you can read in Romans 8 and 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the foundation on which our Christian faith stands, the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And he's interceding for us now on our behalf. What better example, what better mentor, what better life coach can we have? Back to verse 20. So Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to the one who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So Paul has dismissed this hypothetical what-if-we're-wrong question. The reality is, Christ is the first fruits. In Leviticus, the people would bring the first sheaf of the crop to the the, the priest, sorry, the first sheaf of the crop to the priest, and he would wave it before the Lord. It signified that there was more to come and that the whole harvest was dedicated to God. And the feast of first fruits took place on the first day after the Passover Sabbath which is the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus will be the first of the harvest. Him being the first fruit is a guarantee that there's more to come dedicated to God. And Those who belong to Christ will be raised up with him when he comes again. When the time comes, Jesus will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. He's going to put all enemies under his feet and then be made subject to him who put everything in subjection under him. So in chapter 11, Paul noted that the head of Christ is God. It's not that Jesus is inferior to God. The Son is under the authority of the Father. In the beginning, right, the first book of Genesis, God, the triune God, created. In the end, all things are brought back together under God. Then Paul swings back to asking why people are living the way they are if there's no resurrection. In verse 29, we have an interesting question. He says, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now there are different thoughts on what was being practiced in the church at Corinth and what baptized for the dead would mean in light of future resurrection. But I would just suggest that the people who were being baptized for this, who became sorry, the people would were being baptized for others who became Christians and died before they themselves could be baptized. Verse thirty says, As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast in you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just as the hypothetical if then statements were blown away by the reality of the resurrection. So again, we see the reminder that the believers' lives have not been wasted. Paul then quotes a well-known proverb in verse 33. He says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He tells then tells them, Come back your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame." If you listen to or repeat something over and over long enough, even if it isn't true, sooner or later you're going to start thinking it is. Paul's warning his readers against spending time listening to those who are going to try and lead them astray from the gospel, the one that he made known to them. The church was being influenced by the society around it. And Paul's telling them this has to change. The people are to be more like God and less like the world around them. So question, if you were to write your life story in a book, what would the various chapters cover? Maybe the first chapter would be covered time from you are born to the time you started school. Another, maybe the time you were in school up to the time you left your parents' house. Maybe another, when you got married, etc. For some, there's a chapter called Retirement, and I hope to get there one day. Some may have photo albums, maybe even a hard copy one where you have pages and pictures right in the book. Maybe a virtual album in the cloud that depicts the time and events in your life. We haven't finished writing our books. That is, we don't know what the ending or last chapter will look like. Or do we? I would suggest that we do indeed have a really good look or idea of what the last chapter reads and how that book ends, if you've put your trust in Jesus and made him Lord of your life. It's a great happy ending. We're going to be in heaven, singing the praises of the one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us, and who rose as the first fruits. The one who is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Isn't that amazing? But There's a very scary and sobering ending for those who reject Jesus. So we don't know how this current chapter ends, though, do we? The one that we're in right now. The one that describes our lives right now on earth. How did we do in seeking to delve deeper into God's love and grace? How did we do with making daily decisions that would honor God? Did other people see Christ in us? The second part of our passage focuses on the resurrection body. Paul starts off by noting death is necessary and God provides a different type of body for each seed sown. He then explains that the body will be changed. Verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. At work, we try and Remember to tell each other there's no such thing as a dumb question because you only learn when you ask. But I think here Paul's kind of saying, what a dumb question. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same, People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. It says, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that was sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And it's sown, sorry, I missed one. Sown in weakness and raised in power. It says, if there's a natural body there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural came first, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. A few years back, a few years back I bought this t-shirt. In case you can't read, it says, this body is just a rental. It says, my real body is waiting for me in heaven. And the biblical reference underneath is from Romans 8.23. The New, the New American Standard Bible says it this way, And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Okay, so let's look at this. Well, you know what? Maybe the word uh, rental isn't quite the right word. Actually, theologically, it's definitely not the right word. <laughs> this is the body God gave me. It's not a rental. It was the one I was given. But I think you get the idea. We can give these bodies a touch-up or a paint job. For example, our hairstyle. M- mine's changing color all the time, as an example. Our clothes. We can put makeup on. We can touch up some body parts. Get a Botox injection. Get a cortisone shot. Or you can tune some others up. You can have an insulin pump. Or you can have a pacemaker. And we can replace some worn out parts, can't we? People get knees, hips, even I think you can even get a heart replaced now. And I would suggest that we're pretty good at trying to look after the physical aspects of our bodies. But... There's another aspect to our body, isn't there? Earlier in his letter, Paul wrote, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If we have put our faith in Jesus and made him Lord of our lives, his grace, his love should be reflected in our lives. Yes, some of us, me included, are still kind of cranky at times and maybe a bit stubborn at times. And we need to keep spending time with God reading his word, listening to him, and seeking and doing his will. Just as the people in the Corinthian church were fo- told to focus more on God and less on the world around them, we need to take that message to heart, don't we? In Romans twelve two, we read, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. We'll never reach the point in these physical bodies when we can say, we know God well enough or appreciate his grace and his love for us well enough that we can stop. No, you can't say, I'm good, no more thanks. At some point, these physical bodies will just stop working, and we who belong to Jesus are going to get new bodies, And those are the ones in which we'll spend eternity praising God. That's why we don't know what the last chapter, sorry, that's why we know, if we're believers, what the last chapter is going to look like, because that's what it would be. We don't know exactly what these bodies will look like, but we have a pretty good idea. We do know that as heavenly bodies are imperishable, sorry, our heavenly bodies will be imperishable, they'll be glorious, they'll be powerful. They'll be spiritual. And As our current bodies were designed for life on earth, our heavenly bodies are going to be designed for life with God in heaven. We're going to bear the image of Jesus. And maybe we're all going to have eyes that are just impervious to bright lights, because I think there's going to be a lot of that in heaven. If you think back to the people who got close to God, who saw God, Moses, What happened? His face was so bright, he had to put a veil on. When Jesus was transfigured, when Stephen was being stoned, and his face shone. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be six feet tall when I get my new body or not. But I don't think anyone's going to be paying attention to that because we're all going to be focused on worshiping God. Verse 50 says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Very similar to the words that Paul wrote in First Thessalonians 4. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. And it's interesting, Paul quotes this sentence from Isaiah 25, verse 8. And although the people in Isaiah's time probably didn't see resurrection as the way that it's seen in the New Testament. They were probably thinking of resurrection as the nation will be restored, the nation will be brought back to life, versus an individual rising and being in heaven with Jesus. So, slight difference, I think, in terms of how they might have been looking at it, but it's really interesting, at least to me, that Paul chose that part of the verse to note here. Death has been swallowed up in victory, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law showed that nobody could keep every aspect of it. The law told us all of us have fallen short on at least one of the commands. It shows that we're a sinful people, and it points us to Jesus. The one who came to fulfill, not abolish, the law and the prophets. Jesus conquered death, and he broke the power or the curse of sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have, don't we? And as we sang, he lives. It's, it's just interesting also that in that last little bit we read, In the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. Not everyone will experience death. So Paul expected that there's going to be a time when Jesus comes back, those who are still on the earth, those who are still living, will be taken up. They're not going to experience death, It's kind of amazing in itself too. And we'll all be gathered together and be with the Lord. Paul finishes by saying, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Probably a few months ago, I reached a point where I just couldn't watch the news on TV anymore. It's just so depressing. COVID aside, the things that are happening in the world, the state of affairs, the way people treat each other, It's just kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? And then you look at what's happening in terms of weather events and different things, and you think, hmm, okay. Although we don't know when the end times will be, sometimes I think it looks like we're getting a lot closer in a hurry. This should, however, turn our attention over to God and make us more focused on his work, shouldn't it? Paul explored the what if scenarios that resulted would have resulted in us people to be most pitied. You know, those ones who live their lives believing in that farce. But the what if scenarios were neg- neg- sorry, the what if scenarios were negated by that wonderful word but but Jesus did rise from the dead, and we too will have new bodies one day. So our devotion to and our work from the Lord will not be in vain. So to summarize, our passage this morning provides the foundation for our Christian faith. We looked at resurrection, which was rejected by the culture then, and is also rejected by the culture now, isn't it? We looked at some what-ifs and realized that if there's no rejection, we, like Paul and the Corinthians, are like people most to be pitied. We can just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But, as we've also seen, and know the resurrection's reality. Jesus is alive. He's risen, he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us even now. Just so amazing. Our bodies are temples of the living God. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed. We'll never reach the point where we can say we know God well enough that we can say, you know, no thanks, I'm good. The Christian life is about knowing God and seeking to honor the living God. It's about reflecting the love and the grace that he's poured out to others through our lives. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus and made him Lord of your life, sorry, if you put your trust in Jesus and made him Lord of your life, I would submit that the final chapter or the ending of your life is written already. You kind of know what it is. If you haven't, I would urge you to do so. The final chapter for those who reject Jesus is pretty scary. So in closing, just going to read the last few verses again. The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'll ask uh, our musicians to come up for a closing song and uh, if they can close in prayer, please.
1: So we're going to uh, close with the song we ended before the sermon uh, Boldly I Approached the Throne. We uh, It was a little bit of a change up, but there is no better way because thanks to Steve to really expounding that very well, but we can boldly approach the throne because there is no doubt of the validity and the truth of the Bible, the gospel, and the whole package. And so as a church, as a Christians everywhere, and hopefully people who do not yet believe, I pray that boldly we approach the throne. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your wonderful truths in Scripture, just how amazing it is how we can look back, verify, see the truth, see the patterns, and apply it to our lives and have full confidence that we are in you and on the right path. We thank you, Lord, for creating the world. We thank you for for everything, Lord. Without you, there is nothing. And Lord, I just pray that we boldly approach your throne and that we lay our lives down for you as you have done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening.
0: Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church.
1: Until next time.